What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. This is our show that's primarily geared towards our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, or even those folks uh, out there that might be listening that uh, are of no particular faith persuasion at all. Uh, We would love to hear from you today. And we always ask a generic question at the top of the show, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to hear from you today. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 and you could always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Charles Beery producing the program and I'm sitting in today for Tom Price I should have mentioned uh, Matt Gubensky is not screening your phone calls Instead, it is Mr. Ace McKay is the celebrity call screener for today's program. And Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our hostess he is every day, Dr. David Anders. Jack, how are you? How are you? Terrific, thank you. Good. Got <clears throat> I have an email from Lisa. She says, hello, I'm assuming when Jesus returns for the final judgment, purgatory will cease to exist. Will the souls that still live on earth at this time not get a chance to be purified in purgatory? It's either straight to heaven or straight to hell for these poor folks. Or lucky folks, depending on your point of view. Yeah, so we don't really know how purgatory works. We know that it exists. We don't really understand anything beyond that, that it's a place of purification and, and reparation. We don't know anything about the time frame. Uh, so uh, here's a thought for you. <clears throat> here's a thought. If you saw the Lord face to face in all his glory, and you were conscious uh, in your own conscience that maybe you weren't ready for that, you're in the state of grace, you love God, but you've got some attachments, you have some things you haven't really done penance for, and you meet him in all his glory, what do you think your state of mind would be in that moment? you think it would be just entirely pleasant, or there might be a note of trepidation, maybe some self-recrimination, maybe some shame, maybe some guilt, uh, maybe some anxiety? Uh, How intense would it be? Do you know? Probably not. Well, what if the whatever discomfort you might feel uh, in the immediate presence of, of the glorious Lord upon his return, if that, in your case, was purgatory. 
Because, see, that's what I think happens, because you're right. Purgatory is temporary. It doesn't last forever. And the eschaton is set in motion with the return of Jesus. That doesn't mean that the souls that are alive at his coming will, will do no reparation, will have no occasion for purification. Perhaps the mode of their purification will be somewhat different from the separated souls now they're in purgatory. Uh, but the fact of the reparation, the fact of the purification, that will, that will exist. And personally, I think a very plausible way that may happen is in confronting the person of Jesus themselves uh, in that moment. Their own, their own subjective state of self-awareness will have a purifying aspect to it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Catherine writes in, what is the difference between eating the Eucharist and cannibalism? Lots of differences, lots of differences. So, first of all, the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is entirely different from the mode of presence of the uh, uh, of the victim in the boiling pot of the cannibal. Entirely different mode of presence. We have in the Blessed Sacrament the substance of Christ's body and blood, but, when, but not his physical. We have the substantial presence of Christ, but the Church is emphatic. It does not use the word physical, because physical implies... Um, you know, all the sensible differentiation of the of the parts of the human body that could be divided from one another. You know, you could you could disembowel someone, you could take off their legs or arms. You know, hey, I like white meat, I like dark meat. All that is implied by physical. None of that is present in the Eucharist, right? If I take the sacred host and I break it in half, I'm not separating dark meat from light meat. I'm not breaking off Jesus' head from his torso or his arms from his body, trunk, or whatever. I have the substantial presence of Christ, whole and entire, under every particle of the host in such a fashion that it is indivisible. It cannot be broken apart in that way. God, Christ cannot be, uh, he cannot be killed. He can't be made to bleed. He can't be made to suffer in the Blessed Sacrament. And for that matter, we teach that the substantial presence of Christ is only there as long as the accidents, the appearance, the properties of bread and wine remain. Uh, now, in, in the process of digestion, clearly before you get to the intestinal tract, whatever you consume is going to stop looking like bread and wine. And according to the teaching of the Catholic faith, the real presence ceases at the moment that the, that the elements cease to have the appearance of bread and wine. So we're not, we're not even metabolizing the real presence of Christ. It's not entering into, you know, into our own uh, synthesis of proteins and fats and all the rest of it. We're not, we're not incorporating his flesh into our physical bodies. It's a, the purpose of the Eucharist is not to have a good meal and receive physical nourishment. It's nourishment for our souls. So the mode of reception, the mode of incorporation, the mode of presence is entirely different in the Blessed Sacrament than it is in the victim of, of the cannibal. <clears throat> 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. And if you'd like, you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. What's stopping you from, a, uh, from becoming a Catholic? It's... Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
From Rome to your home with EWTN News' Vatican Bureau, you can watch all of the important events in Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up today is Diva in the great state of Colorado listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Is it Diva or Deva? Uh, it's Ava. Oh, or, or Ava. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Ava. You're on with Dr. Anders. Uh, thank you. Um, so I come from like a Calvinist background, I guess, and I was reading about the Thomas School of Soteriology. And what I was reading was that they affirm unconditional election, but don't affirm double predestination. And I was wondering how that's the case. Like, it seems kind of like a semantic difference to say one but not the other. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. There are a number of distinctions that we need to draw between the Calvinist view and the Thomist view. So um, to begin with, what, what the word predestination means, right, is the setting apart of somebody for salvation, the setting apart of someone to be part of the Church and part of God's plan. And and the, the the paradigm case here would be, say, like the person of Abraham or the person of Christ himself. God's choice of Abraham to be the means of blessing of all nations, or his choice of Christ, his predetermination that the incarnate Lord would become the means of the redemption of all the world, does not imply, in virtue of having chosen Christ for that role, it does not imply... Uh, you know, a, a kind of antitype that God necessarily intends a specific individual for the purpose of damnation, right? That's just not what the word means. It's not how it's used in sacred scripture. And I think you can, when you apply it to those paradigm cases, it, it, it's easy to see what we mean by the word. God set this person apart. So if he predestines you, for example, he sets you apart to be part of the church and a part of the, the church triumphant, right? And he's determined to give you the grace that would efficaciously bring about your salvation. Now, with the with the Calvinist idea of double predestination, is uh, predestination is not just a predestination to glory; uh, it is a predestination to reprobation, so that God positively intends before the foundation of the world to create certain individuals for the express purpose of damning them. Um, in the Catholic scheme, God doesn't create any individual for the purpose of damning them. Uh, their damnation might be a consequent of the fact that they they don't cooperate with the grace necessary for salvation. And we can talk about how that might work into the scheme of divine providence. But in terms of the positive decree, God's intent to create is not, emphatically not, for the purpose of showing forth his glory in their reprobation, which is absolutely what Calvin says. Now, a couple other differences that are worth noting. Uh, On the Calvinist schema, as I'm sure you're aware, grace is irresistible. Uh, on the Catholic schema, grace is resistible. It is possible to resist grace. Um, uh, on, uh, on the Calvinist schema, particularly after Dort, um, uh, the, the atonement of Christ is limited only to the elect. God, Christ does not die for the whole world. He dies only for the elect. So if you're a Calvinist, a strict Calvinist, you literally cannot walk up to a man on the street and say, Jesus Christ died for you. If you're a Calvinist, you can't know that to be the case. right? You can say, Jesus Christ died for sinners, uh, you might be one of the ones he died for, but if you're not, you know, too bad for you. If you're a Catholic, you can emphatically say to any human being, 
uh, Christ died for you. That is a fact. Um, uh, the other, another difference is that in the Calvinist schema, the grace, uh, grace is granted only to the elect. In the Catholic schema, Christ gives, God gives sufficient grace to every individual that they might be saved. Um, and, uh, and so those are some of your major differences right there. Now, what the similarity between Calvinism and Thomism is that both maintain a very strong doctrine of God's providence, such that for the Thomist, uh, you know, that one person cooperates with grace and another doesn't, ultimately devolves back to the providential plan of God, although Thomists want to emphasize that it's through the medium of human freedom that that comes about, but it still falls within the scope of divine providence. Uh, and so that's where the, the superficial similarity lies. The Thomist doesn't try to discern a reason for God granting efficacious grace to one and not to another, and he draws a distinction between sufficient grace and efficacious grace. Now, not all Catholic theologians draw that distinction. So some of the Jesuit types in the Molinist school, for example, would say that there is an intelligible reason why God grants efficacious grace to one and not to another, and it's because God has knowledge of future counterfactuals, that he knows the use that an individual would make of grace in his freedom, and he sort of guides the, the, the stream of human history according to his foreknowledge of what would happen under different circumstances. Thomists don't like that because I think it ascribes too much to human freedom. Uh, Nolanists don't like the Thomists because they think they smack too much of Manichaeism. So, you know, but those differences are allowable within Catholic theology. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Alex in the Republic of Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Alex, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Dr. David. I had a question in regards to Catholic Church's teaching and video games. There's a game that uh, my wife and I have been discussing back and forth, a game called um, Phasmophobia. It deals with hunting ghosts and those kinds of things. Um, one of the questions I had is there's things that are related as far as items that are cursed, also the Ouija board and things like that in the game. However, one of the questions was, um, <clears throat> if you refrain from using any of those items, does it make it okay to play the video game or staying away from the game altogether? Is that something that um, parents, uh, if their children are playing games like this, is that something parents should be concerned about? So if I'm a, a person that's converting to Catholicism, I have a child that plays video games, uh, horror games such as this. What would be the steps or the, um, I guess, take on this uh, to address this or to, sure. Um, sure. I guess, in that, in that situation? So I, I'm going to give you my opinion as a Catholic person. Uh, I'm not going to speak for the magisterium of the Church, because the magisterium doesn't do things like pronounce an opinion upon a specific video game. That's That's far too specific for the magisterium to get involved in. So I'm just going to use my, my best judgment as a lay Catholic. Uh, when it comes to video games in general, and not, not this one game, uh, I think that gamers can take some confidence in the knowledge that the Church has now canonized, yes, I did say canonized, her first video gamer, Blessed Carlo Acutis, right, who is the, the, the saint of uh, online communication, um, is known to have or reported to have possessed a PlayStation and been a fan of Halo, uh, Pokemon, and Mario, right? And so uh, it didn't it didn't prevent him from obtaining sanctity and being raised to the altar. So gamers of the world rejoice. Carlo Acutis can now be your patron. Um, that being said, and this is just me speaking as a parent here, uh, you I'm sure you're aware that 
there is a misuse of video games, even seemingly innocuous video games that don't deal in occult themes, uh, can be addictive, and they can they can distract young people, young men in particular, from more profitable uses of their time, more profitable pursuits. I mean, I I have uh, four sons, all of them have been fans of video gaming, and I have had to exercise more or less restraint over the years to try to uh, you know mitigate that that uh, that intense. Uh, enjoyment of video games and make sure they direct their energies into some other more profitable avenues. But as a distraction and an entertainment, you know, it could be, you know, harmless provided it's in moderation. When it comes to the kind of questions that you're raising about the content of the game, so personal opinion, okay, personal opinion. There's a zillion video games out there to choose from. I, I, I don't see the point. I don't see the need to spend your time um role-playing in a fantasy universe that uh, that seeks to draw you directly into the occult. I, I don't I don't see the utility of that. Um, and uh, and if it were my child, that video game would not be in my house for me. That would not be in my house if it were my child. Now, as soon as I say that, I'm I'm going to acknowledge that you know I'm not a person that thinks that that uh, you know that 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 a demon inhabits a book. Right, that a, or that a demon inhabits a particular piece of software code. I don't. I don't have a superstitious idea that, you know, merely by possessing a game like this or a book that had that content in it, that that you know some kind of uh, mystic mumbo jumbo is going to float out into my house. Uh, I, I think it comes in at the level of intentional engagement, the engagement of the imagination, and what might become a temptation for the child. Uh, I think that there are probably people who are uh, intellectually and spiritually mature enough that were they to engage that kind of content in fiction, that it would not constitute for them a temptation. And, and so, you know, I have questions about why an adult Catholic would want to spend their time in that kind of material. But that being said, I think you have to tailor your judgments about what's appropriate or inappropriate somewhat to the maturity and faith development of the person in question. Uh, and I think that sometimes there's, there's fictional content that's a stumbling block for one person, that isn't for somebody else. Now, you know, St. Paul's rule was regarding, say, meat sacrifice to idols in the first century is for some person, if you invite them over to your house and you serve them meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, they won't be bothered by that and they're not going to go into idolatry. But someone who's just come out of paganism and he sees you offering him meat that he bought in the meat market knowing it had been sacrificed to a pagan god is going to assume that pagan idolatry is okay, and he's going to dive into paganism again because you've led him astray. So Paul's rule for that was, I don't ever want to eat meat if by eating meat I'm going to lead somebody into paganism, if I'm going to lead them into idolatry. And I think that's a principle that we can apply really across the board with all of this kind of, this, this sort of indifferent stuff, this, uh, this uh, adiaphora. Uh, if, if my engagement is going to lead somebody into, even if I myself don't have that weakness, is going to leave somebody else into activity that would be harmful to them, then I, then I don't see any sense in going into that. i got other, other ways to spend my time. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is David. He is in uh, the great state of Ohio listening on Ave Maria Radio. David, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you. Good afternoon. I was wondering, with all the approved or confirmed approved, um, and I may not say this correctly, apparitions from Our Lady, like when she went and visited with those children, 
um, you know, a long time ago and several times. Is there is there uh, a common denominator between all the people that have been approved? You know, the apparition that have been approved. A common denominator of why that she chose them. If I'm saying this. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so this is this is a speculative question, right? And as soon as I answer, some uh, Mariologists will come in and give me a different principle and tell me, Andrews, you don't know what you're talking about. But this is something that I have discerned. Uh, in in many of the most popular and also approved uh, apparitions of Our Lady, they come to the poor. They come to people of no account in the world. Uh, they come to children. They come to women. They come to the unlearned. And and uh, the message is tailored to their specific historical circumstance, but there are some universalizable elements, and one of them in particular is turn to Jesus, do penance, repent of sin, take up the life of prayer, be engaged in the liturgy, be obedient to the church. So there are always exhortations to the the the, the sincere and generous embrace of the Catholic faith. Um, but to people who otherwise would not be listened to. That that seems to me to be the common denominator. Thanks so much, David. We appreciate the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Next up is Lenny in New Orleans, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Lenny, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders. Thank Howdy. you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I have a statement or question about purgatory. Sure. So I'm going to start off where um, I'm a Catholic. Uh, I truly believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He is my my Savior and your and your Savior. I'm, I'm sure. So if He died for our sins, when we die, I believe we are sinless. And if we go to heaven, we're sinless. If we go to hell, we're sinless. The only reason we wouldn't get into heaven is because we didn't believe that Jesus Christ was our Savior, because that's the only way to get to heaven. And purgatory, I'm not sure whether I believe that there is a purgatory, although most of my life I have believed that that it was. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, but somewhere between 800 A.D. and 1200 A.D., the Catholic Church came up with purgatory uh, because it was in need of, of funds, and it was a way to buy time away from, from purgatory. For as much money as you donated, you earned more time away from pur- purgatory. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, r- I really appreciate the question. So the, the, the way you have told the story, both your description about the nature of Christ's atonement, uh, its meaning for our life and spirituality, and the development of the doctrine of purgatory, your whole account of that uh, is very consistent with the way most Protestants would tell the story about purgatory. It's very, very different from the way the Church understands purgatory, the death of Christ, our redemption, very, very profoundly different. So let, let me give you the Catholic position on this, because it's, it's not what you just described. First of all, let, let's talk about the death of Christ and what the death of Christ does for us. So um, where Protestants and Catholics agree is that the death of Christ uh, atones for sin, and in fact gets rid of our sin. But they differ profoundly on how that happens. Um, For a Protestant, the death of Christ works by Jesus receiving the punishment that is due to us. God meets out the punishment that we deserve upon Christ and and then grants us 
uh, forgiveness and reward that we don't deserve. All right, now hold that thought. i got to come back after the break. Here comes the music, but don't go away. 833-288-EWTN. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, St. Gabriel Communications in Garden City, Kansas, is celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to James Janda and his team at KSGC 100.5 FM from all of us here at EWTN radio. We're talking with Lenny in New Orleans, David, about purgatory. Yeah, thanks. So Lenny's question was, uh, if we have the death of Christ making atonement for our sins, then what's the purpose of purgatory? If we all die and we're sinless, that's what Christ's death seems to have accomplished, then why bother with purgatory? And isn't purgatory something that the Catholic Church made up in, say, the year 800 to 1200 in order to sell indulgences and, and generate revenue? So let's deal with those objections. So the first of all, about the death of Christ, uh, on a Protestant reading— Jesus died to bear the punishment that was due to us. God punishes Christ instead of us, and having punished, having poured out his wrath, having expiated his wrath upon Jesus, were they then able to get off scot-free, as it were, just by faith alone. Um, so that understanding of the death of Christ, which so for a Protestant, if he thinks that, he goes, well, hey, every possible punishment that could be due to sin has already been paid by Jesus. There's literally nothing left for me to do. Uh, Catholics reject that whole understanding of the death of Christ for a lot of reasons. One is totally unbiblical. There's nothing in sacred scripture that suggests that that's the way the atonement of Christ works. On the contrary, on the contrary, scripture presents the death of Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, and that's a that's a technical term for an Old Testament ritual, right? There's something that was intended by the Old Testament rite of sacrifice, and it was not substitutionary punishment. So when an Old Testament believer brought an animal to the temple, for example, and offered in sacrifice. The idea behind that was not that God was going to expiate his wrath on an irrational animal. The idea of the sacrifice was rather that the worshiper was offering up something of value. You know, kind of like if I offended my wife, God forbid, and I said, oh, this is not, this is not going well at all. I, I need to do something. So I run out to the flower shop and I buy her a bunch of flowers. And I come back and say, you know, honey, I'm so sorry. Here, please accept this as a token of my, of my apology. On the Protestant view, the purpose of the flowers is that my wife yanks them out of my hand and then stomps them into pieces and takes out her wrath upon the flowers. And then having expiated her wrath upon the victim, there's no wrath left over for me, right? That's clearly how—that's not how the flowers work, right? Uh, Any wife who likes the flowers is going to say, oh, how lovely. Take the flowers, put them in a vase, put them up on the, you know, on the mantelpiece— uh, it's not so that she can expiate her wrath on them. It's the flowers are a token of my of my act of reparation. I'm offering up something of value to to make amends. It's a very different conceptualization of what happens in sacrifice. The Catholic view of the death of Christ is like that. It's it's an act of reparation of satisfaction, not of substitutionary punishment. And and. Uh, the Protestant view has the indignity of ascribing to God injustice because it suggests that God punishes the innocent in order to acquit the guilty, 
right? Which is kind of obscene if you think about it. We would a judge, human judge, that, that we say this of the essence of an unjust judge, somebody who punishes the innocent and acquits the guilty. The other thing is that the scriptures just don't teach the Protestant view, right? Sacred tradition doesn't either. There's just nothing in the tradition that suggests that's the way the death of Christ works. Rather, Jesus, book of Philippians chapter 2 tells us this, also Acts chapter 2, uh, Jesus offers his own life as something intrinsically worthy of infinite value. And rather than being punished and despised by God in that act of self-offering, he's rewarded by God because his act is genuinely meritorious. And the reward that God grants to Jesus because of this sacrificial act is the gift of the Holy Spirit and grace poured out upon Christ's body, which is the church. So it's a very different conceptualization. Um, And it, it doesn't involve substitutionary punishment. Secondly, you have to separate the atonement of the death of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross, what objectively happened on the cross, from its application. What I mean by that is Jesus dies on the cross regardless of whether or not I believe in him. He's merited the redemption of sins for the whole world by what he did on the cross. But for that to be effective in me, I have to have it applied to my life. There's the the objective atonement, then there's its subjective application. And again, for the Protestant, the subjective application of the death of Christ is just my act of faith. Through faith alone, the benefits of Christ's death are applied to me. But Scripture contradicts that, doesn't teach the doctrine that we're saved by faith alone. The Protestant position, which is the biblical one, is that the, the, the fruit of Christ's sacrifice is applied to me in several modalities. Faith is one of them, all right? The sacraments is one of them. But so is my, my ongoing life of Christian discipleship, where I, where I, whereby I take up my cross and follow Jesus. That sanctification, that, that salvation from sin, is a progressive uh, action whereby I, I am purified over time of my attachment to sin by actively seeking to imitate the cruciform shape of Jesus' life. That's why Paul can write to believers, he can write to those who have the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. He says, purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Well, like on the Protestant view of the atonement, there's no reason to do that. Everything's already been taken care of on the cross. Why would the apostle exhort me to purify myself? Purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit out of reverence for God. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul encourages us uh, to have the eyes of our hearts opened that we might experientially know the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's this, this, this constant urge in the epistles and the gospels that we go further up and further in, that we deepen our... Uh, our our union with Christ, that we become more and more like him. St. Irenaeus, second century theologian, wrote that what we lost in Adam we regain in Christ, namely to be in the likeness and image of God. And the task of Christian life is that continual polishing of that likeness and image until we come to shine in glory like the person of Jesus himself. So it's not something that takes place once for all in a singular moment. It's, it's something that emerges over the course of Christian discipleship. And if it is not adequately accomplished in this life, for that there is appointed purgatory. Now, to your to your uh, suggestion that purgatory was invented by the Catholic Church as a revenue-generating tool, well, the history doesn't bear that out. So first of all, we can find hints of a doctrine of purgatory in sacred scripture uh, in that the Church from antiquity prayed for the souls of the dead. You can find that in 2 Maccabees chapter 12. You can find it in Paul's letters to Timothy. Uh, there is, there is a, 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 an intuition on the part of the Church within Scripture that the faithful departed need and can benefit from our prayers, that there's something about the intermediate state after death 
uh, in which they have need of that. That's why the church has always practiced that. Uh, we can find an articulate doctrine of purgatory uh, in late antiquity. Well, actually, not that late antiquity. You can find it in St. Cyprian, who is a third-century theologian writing in the 250s, uh, when the church uh, did not have any revenue-generating power at all uh, and was, in fact, under intense persecution under the emperor Decius. And so there was no motive there for—there's uh, for, no remunerative motive on the part of St. Cyprian. You can find it developed in St. Augustine. And again, Augustine is himself wedded to a vow of poverty. Uh, he's an intensely spiritualistic Catholic thinker who who decries uh, material wealth, and there's just no hint in Augustine of doing this for a material materialistic motive, uh, and yet you can find an articulate doctrine of purgatory in both of those of those Latin saints, um, and the practice of indulgences, which is of course separate from from um, from purgatory, but it's related to it, emerges at the same time, but in entirely different context. The practice of indulgences emerged out of the the church's disciplinary procedures in handling apostates during the Decian persecution. Um, And what was being substituted uh, as penance was not monetary remuneration. It was actually the prayers and intercessions of the confessors, those that were languishing in prison. And they would offer those on behalf of those that were under church discipline. So it's just an entirely different context for the development of the the practice of indulgences that had nothing to do with remuneration. Um, now it is true that what we would call what we call the cult of purgatory, the cult of the dead, uh, is something that develops tremendously in the late Middle Ages, and there is an eschatological anxiety that seems to come in and capture the imagination of Western Europeans, and you find the institution of chantries, for example, uh, endowments that people would leave in their will to have monks uh, say masses for the repose of their souls after they died, or confraternities that would exist for that purpose, groups of Catholics that would band together and uh, and promise to pray for one another and their relatives as, after they died. Those kinds of traditions do enter, the, do enter Catholicism in the high and late Middle Ages. Um, but again, they are not, they're not revenue-generating tools uh, uh, created by the church. They're really the spontaneous emergence within the heart of the Christian faithful who are turning to one another and to religious foundations asking for this so that prayers might be said for the repose of their soul. The abuse of indulgences for revenue generation is something that does emerge in the 16th century, in particular uh, in conjunction with the Dominican Tetzel, who so offended Martin Luther. Um, but the but the roots of the doctrine of purgatory, of penances, indulgences, of prayers for the dead, uh, even the cult of purgatory, so far predate those abuses that uh, that I, I really don't think the history, as you've related it, is is true to the facts. We head back to the Republic of Texas. Jesse is in Dallas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Jesse, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, good afternoon, Dr. Anders. How are you? Oh, taking a drink, but otherwise fine. Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> Excellent. No worries. No worries. I had a question. Um, my son asked me a good question, and I didn't know quite how to respond to it. Um, he said, here's his question. If demons are fallen angels and demons can possess humans, can an angel who's not fallen do the same? Um, yeah, thank you. So it's kind of like asking if Mother Teresa could join the mafia. Right? Like, is it physically possible for Mother Teresa to go sign up and join an organized crime ring? Yeah, there's nothing physically impossible about her doing that, but it would have been morally impossible. It would have been unthinkable. Mother Teresa just wouldn't do that. She wouldn't have joined the mafia. Um, and, uh, and so I think we could say the same thing about the holy angels. So the holy angels 
are holy, right? They're holy, which means that they are fully possessed by charity. So uh, to overwhelm the will and the rationality of another sentient creature in an act of violence is the last thing in the world that a holy angel would do. Fair enough. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Next up is Michael in Denver, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Michael, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I hope I asked this correctly. I've been taught all my life, and you have repeated it many times today, that Jesus died for our sins, once and for all, past, present, and future. And also that baptism cleanses our soul of original sin. I'm a little confused as to why original sin is not covered under Christ's death uh, that, 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 that forgives us of our sins. Oh, but it is. It is. It absolutely is. Um, now, there's a difference between original sin and actual sin. And original sin, the Catechism says, is sin only by analogy. Uh, it's not personal fault. And so no one, no one is actively punished because of original sin, in the, in the sense that God says, well, I've got nothing against you except original sin, so, you know, here's eternity in hell for you because of original sin. God doesn't function that way. Uh, here's what original sin means in Catholic theology. When Adam and Eve were created, God gave them a super-added gift of grace, uh, this created participation in the life of God that we call grace. It wasn't theirs by nature. It was something that was a gift to them. When they sinned, they lost that gift of sanctifying grace. And their progeny don't inherit uh, some kind of positive infection in the soul. When we talk about original sin being inherited, what we mean is that they come into the world without that superadded gift of grace. And so original sin is not a positive act. It's a privation. It's the absence of something, namely sanctifying grace. What baptism does is it restores sanctifying grace to the soul. Now, it does more than that. Uh, the sanctifying grace is the opposite of mortal sin. So if, you, if grace flows in, mortal sin flows out. But that dynamic of the reception of grace, which simultaneously restores you to that Adamic state of having original, of having uh, righteousness, and of expelling mortal sin from the soul, all of that is won for us by Christ's atonement. So, of course, the death of Christ uh, uh, remedies the, the, the wound of original sin. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We head next to Stamford, Connecticut. Tammy is listening on Veritas Radio. Tammy, you're on with Dr. Anders. Thank you, Dr. Anders. Uh, I have a question um, about uh, Genesis 1-1. Uh, it was my first Bible verse when I was a little girl, and I was taught that in the beginning God created heaven and earth, God uh, being a plural noun, and that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, being part of that plural noun, has been with us from the very beginning. And my question is, um, in the Jewish um, uh, version of Genesis 1-1, do they also, um, is that also a plural noun? Yes, yeah, Elohim, sure, it is a plural noun, yeah. Now, I, I would say that the, the reading the Trinitarian doctrine into Genesis 1-1 is something that Christians have done. 
I, I don't know that that's necessary. I mean, you don't you don't have to conclude. Uh, there, I mean, there are other grounds for the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, the, we really only understand the Trinity in light of the incarnation of Christ and his explicit teaching, especially in the Gospel of John. And, of course, we can read that back into the Old Testament data. Um, but uh, I think there, there are other ways grammatically and etymologically to understand Genesis 1-1 without necessarily drawing the Trinitarian conclusion. Although it's a valid conclusion about the nature of God, it may not be exegetically valid for that one particular verse. Be sure to check out Word on Fire on Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, Father Steve Gruno discusses how Halloween served as a festival to commemorate All Saints and All Souls Day. That's Word on Fire Sunday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Lou in the great city of St. Louis, listening on Covenant Radio. Lou, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, hello. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me again. Um, of course, this is All Souls Day, and I believe it means all souls who have departed from this life and are not yet in heaven but are in purgatory. And um, I pray every day that all souls, um, all of the living and even all of the departed, uh, be granted eternal salvation through God's infinite, inexhaustible, unfathomable, endless mercy. And um, uh, the Church teaches that uh, we, each of us, is uh, basically, um, our nature is in the image and likeness of the one true living God who is all things good and holy and loving and compassionate and forgiving. And um, So what's your, what's your no question ma- for us today, Lou? Pardon me? What is your question for us today? Uh, I'm just wondering, I pray always for all, that all the souls um, be granted it, it, eternal life uh, through God's mercy, and I wonder if that's—I I know— um, Yeah, that's Dr. fantastic, Lou. I, that's a wonderful thing to do. I mean, praying for the holy souls is something the Church commends. It's meritorious on your part, charitable as well, so please keep doing it. Now, there are there are specific prayers that we can pray for the, the departed souls. The most efficacious, of course, is to have masses said for the repose of a soul. Uh, if you have a loved one in particular that you are concerned about, you can always, uh, you can always ask a priest to say Mass on their behalf. Um, you might be interested to know that the Church grants a plenary indulgence on the Feast of All Souls. If you visit a church or an oratory and recite the Our Father and their creed for the repose of the holy souls, and of course have you know gone to confession and received Holy Communion, uh, you can receive a plenary indulgence. So go, go get that indulgence today while you can. Gloria is in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Gloria, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I met a lady yesterday, Baptist, and um, she said that Constantine is founder is the founder of the church, or that Constantine is the founder of uh, the you know religions who are in Christ. I want a scripture-based scripture answer to give to her, and I want to know how she can reach you besides this uh, through this 188 number. Yeah, sure, thank number. you. So in terms of scriptural evidence about Jesus' foundation of the Church, you, you can't find anything clearer than the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, 
where Christ says to St. Peter, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus states his positive intention to establish the church upon the rock of St. Peter. There it is in, in red and white in the book of uh, St. Matthew, Gospel of St. Matthew. Uh, to the charge that Constantine is responsible for the foundation of the church or the Catholic church, people who make that claim just clearly haven't studied the history at all, at all. I mean, I recently, personally, I read history a lot, and I, I've read many, many histories of Christian antiquity, but I, I recently read one by a, by a non-Christian, an unbeliever, um, and uh, whole chapters in there about Constantine, and and this you know guy had no dog in the fight at all. wasn't a Christian at all, and he you know he says uh, he never makes the claim that Constantine founded the Catholic Church because he manifestly didn't. I mean, when Constantine converted to Christianity, he was converting to a religion that was already three hundred years old. I mean, Jesus ascended what sometime in you know thirty thirty three A.D. Um, you know, Constantine converts in the early fourth century. We're talking 300 years have gone by. Uh, there is an established practice of Christianity with monoepiscopacy, that's, you know, one bishop, one see, the sacramental mysteries, uh, you know, developed dogmatic theological systems, uh, great church fathers that have been, in op- have been writing and commenting on Scripture for three centuries before Constantine even emerges. Of course, once Constantine became a Christian, uh, accepted the God of the Christian Church. He he ran into a theological controversy. That was the that was the controversy over Arianism, question over the divinity of Christ, and he knew he needed to get that thing fixed. So what did he do? He turned to the bishops of the Catholic Church to solve it. Well, how could there have been bishops of the Catholic Church for him to turn to, if he had yet to create them? Right now, the fact is that Christ established the episcopacy. It had been around for three hundred years before Constantine. So all you got to do is go read the history. Pick up a copy of the Apostolic Fathers, which is a collection of early Christian documents from the second century. Uh, you'll see uh, the seeds and outline of Catholicism, the episcopacy, and the sacraments all there in the second century, long before Constantine ever emerged on the scene. We'll stay in the Republic of Texas. Uh, Texas. Dorothy is listening also on Guadalupe Radio. Dorothy, you're on with Dr. Anders. Thank you, Dr. Andrews. I have, like, so many questions. But today, I did, uh, sitting at a cemetery to pray for my friend who lost both of her parents in the accident. And so after First Communion, uh, I guess she was raised another religion, Protestant. How do I explain to her why I'm praying for her parents? Because she's like, I said, well, you can obtain graces by going to the cemetery or indulgences, and you just answered that question by uh, receiving a plenary indulgence, but how do you even start to explain to them what indulgences are? I know, Mark, sure. you know. Yeah, but, absolutely. I wouldn't go to indulgences. I, I think the first thing you need to do is to is the logic of praying for the dead, right? So there's, there is what you can get out of it. I mean, there's this merit to you, of course, graces for you, of course. But what we're really interested in when we pray for the dead is the repose of the dead, it's not. It's less about what I can get out of it, and more what I can do for the behalf on behalf of somebody else. So why would we think that we need to pray for the dead? That's the key question. And and of course the uh, the scriptures reveal that the church has always prayed on behalf of the dead. Now a text your Baptist friend is not going to like, but it does show you at least the mind of Second Temple Judaism, Second Maccabees chapter twelve. Now they don't. Protestants don't recognize that as holy scripture, but but they, Catholics do. But they would clearly see that, that that is representative of the faith of Jews at the time of Jesus, even if they don't recognize it as the Bible. You can see uh, the Jewish people in Judea praying on behalf of the dead right there in that text. And, of course, we know that Jews continue to pray for the dead even today. It's part of their liturgy. 
um, Paul to Timothy. Uh, he prays for the repose of the soul of his friend Onesiphorus. Uh, so in Old and New Testament, we can find the church praying for the dead. Outside of sacred scripture, offering prayers for the dead has been part of Christian liturgical tradition as far back as we can go. You know, when, when St. Monica died, uh, she told her son Augustine, I don't care where you bury me, just remember me at the altar. Just make sure to rep- pray for the repose of my soul. It's always been part of the tradition. And so the question comes up, well, if the church has always prayed for the dead, why? What what utility in praying for the dead? And the the answer is that uh, we have an obligation to make reparation to God for sins that we have committed, for which we have not done reparation. And the Protestant objects, says, I don't need to make reparation, and I would point him to a text like Second uh, Samuel 12 or Second Samuel 24, where we see King David rebuked by a prophet for some grave sin. David repents, God forgives him, and then God imposes a penance. So the act of forgiveness is something separate from the act of imposing a penance, and we can find that in the Bible. Also, uh, what is it, Psalm 24 or Matthew chapter 5 that teach that without purity of heart we can't see God? So for those two reasons, one, to make reparation for sin and to acquire that purity of heart without which no one can see God, purgatory is appointed for those who don't do that in this life. And just quickly in the last couple seconds we have left here, Richard watching on YouTube, he wants to know why does the Catholic Church say that communion cannot be taken by non-Catholics? Shouldn't sharing the Eucharist be the starting point of Christian ecumenism? No, sharing the Eucharist should be the fruit of ecumenism when people come into communion with the Catholic faith because communion is not safe if you're not Catholic for all kinds of reasons. St. Paul says if we take the Eucharist in an unworthy manner, then we're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And the church doesn't want to have blood on its hands. And so since we do not judge non-Catholics, we don't judge them. We do not judge them. It's not an act of judgment. It's our refusal to judge non-Catholics. The reason we can administer communion to Catholics is because we judge Catholics. Some of them are judged unworthy for communion, and they're excluded from communion within the Catholic Church. If you have mortal sin, you can't go to communion. Because we can't do that for Protestants, it's not safe to admit them. It's like giving chemotherapy to somebody if you don't know they have cancer. Right, it, it's you, you might do them harm, and we don't want to harm anybody. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, I'm Jack Williams, sitting in for Tom Price. Thanks for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless. <laughs>